how you respond to colleagues, particularly um, in those situations, you know, shouldn't be dependent on how you're feeling inside. It should be based on the relationships you've built over time. And I, I know it, that's an ideal world kind of view, but um, to me, that's the better, the better you get at working with them the same, whether it's a slow environment or a crazy environment, means that you're getting closer to mastering the skill of, of performance um, and stress management. Our guest this episode is Dr. Brian Hayes. Brian is an attending emergency medicine pharmacist and a clinical toxicologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Harvard Medical School and also works as the program director of the PGY2 Emergency Medicine Pharmacy Residency at Mass General. On a personal note, Brian played a significant role in my own education as a doctor, and it's really an honor to have him join us on the podcast. You can find Brian online at Twitter with the handle PharmERTOXGUY. That's P-H-A-R-M-E-R-T-O-X-G-U-Y. And on his website of the same name, PharmERTOXGUY.com. Our focus this episode is on building systems for mastery. We talk about owning your own role in difficult situations, building structures that support you in performing iterations of self-improvement, how to embrace feedback, and we get really granular in the idea of what you can do shift to shift and day to day in terms of getting yourself to a higher level. If you like what you hear in this episode and in our podcast in general, consider signing up for the Emergency Mind newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free. It's awesome. And you can find it at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay. All that said, let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's great to see your face again. It's, it's been way too long. I'm, I'm honored that you'd, uh, you'd come to join us. Thank you, Dan. I was really honored also when you invited me. Um, I know we worked together for a couple of years during the last couple of years of your residency, but um, you know, pharmacists have quite a unique role in the emergency setting. And uh, I think our interactions were really unique and, and such that I, I'm really glad we get to explore that and how, how we kind of fit into that space and share similar pressures, but also different ones. You know, I have this like, and I was thinking about this this morning before we were starting, I have this composite memory of us working together because I don't think it's a real case that happened. I think it's just the superposition of like a bunch of different cases that happened. And we're standing there in, in acute, um, the, you know, the high intensity area of Mass General Hospital. And there's this person who's just like, just every possible thing is going wrong with this person and there's blood everywhere. And I just remember standing there looking at this person and looking over at you and us both sort of shrugging and then like getting back to work into it. And you know, I, man, so many of those memories working together in the night shifts and everything else. I, I will say, I, I know you've had a bunch of uh, former resident colleagues on the, on the podcast so far. So someone I'm sure has brought this up, but you were uh, pretty well known for being uh, what we refer to as a black cloud in the emergency department, uh, which led to a lot of the experiences that you just shared with you and me standing there, uh, you know, kind of shaking our head and, and coming up with a plan together. So yeah, yeah. true story. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I actually, you know what, I don't know if that term's come up yet on this podcast. I, I, I'm actually not sure if we've talked about that, but there, there's this idea that like people are either a white cloud or a black cloud. Um, and I, I guess the, the easiest, most straightforward way I can say it is that like, if you're a black cloud, you're a shit magnet. Like you just collect really terrible things and like people get really sick and you're just in the dirt for longer and, and more. Um, and I'm proud of that. So I'm going to go ahead. I'll, I'll take that. I think like that. I'm happy to have had that in my training. Um, 
but yeah, so, so, you know, I just keep thinking about all these, these cases we had together, and I'm hoping that part of what we can explore today um, is sort of the interface between the two different disciplines, right? Like the emergency medicine discipline and the emergency pharmacy discipline, but also more in general, sort of how does one get better in those moments? Like, how do you get better under pressure? What are the trainings that we can receive? And, and sort of how do we teach ourselves and the next generation of people around us how to, how to improve at that? Um, so, so let's jump in, man. Let's, let's start with you. Like, like what was early Brian like? Like, when did you first start realizing, hey, I'm somebody that, that not only can stand up to these high pressure situations, but maybe even really like enjoys that? Sure. I, I'll give a little bit of a long-winded answer just so that folks understand my, my background, kind of how I came into this. Um, so I graduated with an undergrad degree in chemistry, um, worked for a couple years uh, in a lab. Um, and then I realized that, you know, I, I really wanted more training, um, but I didn't want to be in a lab forever. So kind of a chemistry PhD and that kind of route was out for me. I mean, I really liked working with, with people. Um, and so I started looking into medical school and um, honestly, pharmacy school wasn't even on my radar at first until I talked to a couple of pharmacists. Um, and this is, I'm dating myself a little bit. This is back in the early 2000s. Um, and I, all, I thought pharmacists just worked at CVS. I really thought that was the only job. And um, I talked to a few who ironically worked there, <laughs> but uh, would told me about all the clinical training that the new PharmD um, candidates received. Um, and then you could go on to do residency training and all this other stuff. And I was really intrigued by that um, because I really love pharmacology and the medicinal chemistry side and kind of combining that with patient care to me was, was really enticing and exciting. And so um, I ended up going to pharmacy school. And, and then when I finished, um, I, I completed a one-year uh, pharmacy residency um, at UMass uh, in Worcester, Mass. Um, and that year, the first year of residency for a pharmacist in a hospital is kind of like your intern year. So you rotate through various units, you get kind of like one month of experience in each of the areas. And it's more meant to be just a, you know, a general practice type residency. You don't, you don't become an expert in anything, but you, you start to really understand how a pharmacist can contribute to patient care in a hospital setting. Um, and then most folks would go on to do a second year of training in their specialty, uh, such as emergency medicine. The problem for me was that at that time, there was only four emergency medicine residencies in the country. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot to choose from. And, you know, my wife and I were, were trying to coordinate so that she could go back and get her PhD. And um, toxicology was something that came up uh, during my PGY1 year because at UMass, there was a huge tox group um, and we got to attend their weekly uh, tox conferences and it really got me psyched about that. So instead of doing an EM residency after my first year, I ended up doing a two-year tox fellowship instead. And during that time, I got to do a couple of months worth of EM rotations over at Johns Hopkins. So I was at the University of Maryland and about two miles away is Johns Hopkins. Um, and so my, my fellowship was at Maryland. And then I just, I took the train over a couple of months to do some EM rotations at Hopkins because they had EM pharmacists. And that's really when um, I started to first uh, immerse myself in the sort of this emergency mind um, set that, that we're gonna talk about today. Um, they were a big trauma center, kind of like we had at uh, Mass General, but actually much, much busier. Um, so I, it's, it's kind of funny in Boston that we, everybody's a level one trauma center because everyone wants to be better than everyone else, but, which is fine. But then uh, that means that the traumas are dispersed uh, amongst all the centers. So no, no one of them is like a huge center. But Baltimore, you know, um, 
it's a pretty, it's an awesome city, but it's also has rough places and um, not too dissimilar from LA where you are now. And uh, Hopkins got a, a big brunt of that um, along with shock trauma at Maryland. So it, it got me in that, in that new mindset of, of really dealing with, with critical patients, many of them at the same time in a very spread out ED where there was a lot of things happening all at once. And as a pharmacist, you know, you're just one person. So that's really where it all started for me. Hmm. And what did they tell you when you were at that at that point, you know, you said that's the first time that you've been sort of like exposed to this idea of multiple patients and multiple sick patients and sort of, you know, at the, at the tip of the spear, so to speak, like, did they, what did they tell you that first day? Like, were you given any training in your, in your residency program about that? Yeah. So the good news is that um, you really, and as a pharmacist, you really don't rotate in places that don't have a, an established pharmacist preceptor in that, in that uh, site already. And so I had two awesome ED pharmacists that had been practicing for multiple years that were my preceptors. And so, you know, on, on the first day, um, they kind of do it the same way we do in, in everything where, you know, the first case, you know, you observe the second case, you know, you kind of run the show, but they're your backup. And then the third case, is you know you're doing it by yourself um, in terms of like managing managing a trauma from the medication standpoint or, and stuff like that. So you definitely get um, help. But the biggest skill that I learned um, early on, and I think Jimmy talked about this too, is prioritization. So you you do this too as an as a physician. Um, my my strategy is a little bit different only because of what I, what I'm looking for is a little different than what you're looking for. But it's it's priority. So I'm taking critical patients first. Um, I'm making sure you know obviously if there's someone arresting or there's a, a big trauma or something that obviously or a stroke that takes precedent um, but after that then you're kind of running your list and you kind of have this running list of 10 to 15 of your sickest patients that you need to know everything about and then as the patients are a little less sick you you probably know less about them um, which sucks you know at mgh there's 100 plus patients and you know i can't know about all of them so you know you know about the 16 or 20 most critical, um, the or the or the ones that you can make the most impact on. And for me as a pharmacist, that's folks that like uh, might need anticoagulation reversal or complicated transplant patients or infectious diseases. So it's not just crashing folks; it's all of the ones that might need a pharmacist intervention more so than other than other people. So I think prioritization was the biggest skill that I started learning in that environment. What was that like to learn that? Did you guys talk it through? Were you, were you able at the end of a shift to talk through with your preceptors and say, hey, I, I feel like I did this okay, but you know, how do you get to that next step? Did you guys run SIM? What did that look like? So the we didn't run SIM back then, or at least I didn't have access to it when I was doing my rotations at Hopkins. When I, when I graduated fellowship and I took my first job as an EM pharmacist at Maryland, we did do SIM, um, and I got to do that with the residents and the attendings, which was, that was, uh, that was awesome, um, really awesome. Um, before that, at Hopkins, though, that was, it's not that SIM didn't exist back in the early 2000s, but it definitely wasn't as big of a training component as it is today. And so um, we, but what is uh, awesome about pharmacy training programs is they're very structured and there is a lot of um, feedback and evaluation, both evaluation from the preceptor, but also self-evaluation that is, I want to say, required from our accrediting programs. Um, and how you accomplish that is a little, is you know different per program, but um, so yes, after a code or after a situation, we would debrief, and then we we would usually have uh, feedback at the end of the day or the end of the shift, um, and then kind of weekly sit downs to kind of talk about how things are going, um, you know, which things are you doing really well at, which things are you going to work on the next week, that kind of stuff. So so the answer is is yes, definitely feedback was 
um, both helpful and appreciated. So you're going through these cases and then you're reviewing the cases and then you're doing a self-evaluative component to it. So to me, what I'm hearing when you're saying that is that, okay, you have to have a really big um, fund of knowledge, a really deep fund of knowledge. So you have the ability to understand the basics and the drugs and sort of what they do. But then you also have this understanding of how you personally learn and of how to, to spin the wheel, the cycle of getting better. So where did that come from? Yeah, that, that's actually really tricky because I think um, I don't I don't quite want to relate it to the the Dunning Kruger effect really, but at the same time, you know, when you're first starting out, your clinical skills are not that great. Even if you have book knowledge, as you know, you know, applying that in a in a real life environment is is a very very different skill set. And so I think there's two components that you sort of get judged on or evaluated on. One of them is the clinical skills, um, which come in time, you know, you, those are things that you can learn. But then the other piece is the um, sort of the, the attitudinal um, performance uh, type stuff. And I'll be honest that not all of my preceptors over the years had training in that either. And so I think that they were really good at giving feedback on clinical skill set type things, um, but not necessarily on how do you get better at performance or not even, I don't even want to say performance, but managing stress, I guess, is, is it would be a better way to say that. Because I think that I did get good feedback on here are some things that you might do differently to help logistically to help you perform better in the next, in the next case, um, but not necessarily on how in my mind to compartmentalize things in a way that would help me to really do that. So that, that for me, anyway, was a little bit more of the personal experience side of things as opposed to someone else teaching it to me. Huh. So, so when you got feedback, it would be like, hey, you used drug X and perhaps you should have used drug Y. That's what you're describing as sort of the clinical skill aspect of it. And by the way, when you have 13 patients, here's how you should order your list in order to deploy that clinical skill. So you've got sort of like the, the structures that allow you to deploy clinical skills but still not quite the other piece, which is how do you actually bridge the gap from that, um, that piece of knowledge to that patient in front of you where and when they need it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the other wrinkle I'll add to this is communication, as I know sure. you've talked about a ton on this podcast. And it, it seems to be whenever we run SIMS or there's an emergency preparedness type event, it seems like communication is always at the top of the list for the things that we need to improve for next time. But for me, what I'm talking about here is more my communication with the team. And so let's say you and I, you know, back in the day when we did work on cases together, you know, my role is, is one thing, you as the attending or the senior resident is another, how you and I are communicating is really important. Um, but again, your mindset is, is different than what I'm thinking about. And so I need to make it clear to you um, if I'm giving a recommendation or whatever it is that I, I need to do my best in the, a lot of time, which is usually short. Um, to help you to understand my mindset and why I'm why I think this is the right thing to do, um, all under a really stressful situation when you're getting talked to by multiple people. And so, for for a pharmacist, that's a really unique slot to be in, where you got to balance all that um, to try and get what you think is the right thing to do across to the person making the decisions, all while not interfering with the flow of the resuscitation. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. And that's a lot of deep, interesting things in that sentence right there, man. I love it. So, <laughs> you know, it makes me think right off the bat of this idea um, that came out of a paper from 
the folks at Arena Labs recently, uh, and I'm just going to quote that. It says, clinical mastery is developed by way of highly individualized tracks, but its delivery, its performance happens in the context of the team, right? Which is something that I think is just sort of endlessly interesting. Like each of us trains individually on our knowledge. Uh, and even within the same sphere, right? Each ER doctor trains differently. Each clinical pharmacist trains differently. But then somehow your specialist and my specialist have to get together in order to deploy that knowledge at the exact moment in space and time when that's needed. And we don't necessarily get trained on that. So how did you learn that? I mean, what was, what was, your, what was your schooling like in terms of communication? Did you have people you looked up to? Did you have people that you looked up to in a bad way being like, I don't ever want to talk like that? Like, what was that like for you? Please don't name names for that second one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting that you, you, you know, you bring that up. I think for me, I had, I kind of had a unique training in my mind anyway. And, and that's because I didn't do the emergency medicine residency like a lot of folks do. Um, I kind of went out, I did it in an, a roundabout way with the toxicology fellowship with some EM built into it. And so when I took my first job at Maryland, um, they ha did not have an ED pharmacist before me. I was the first one. And I was also learning how to be a good EM pharmacist because I had some training, but not, not as much as someone else might have had that came into that same role. Now, I did have the toxicology knowledge that others wouldn't have, but, you know, that's, that's helpful in, you know. 10% of cases as opposed to the other 90%. So um, for me, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big kind of like luck person, or I, I don't think that things happen by luck, but I, but I will say that I feel very fortunate where I landed right out of my training. And that was at University of Maryland and they had, they still do, but they, they had multiple nationally renowned educators at their site. And so they had folks like Amal Matu and Mike Winters. Um, Haney Malamet was there at the time. Mimi Liu for pediatrics. Evie Marcolini was there for neuro and Joe Martinez. There was just, it goes on and on the list of just amazing educators that, that are there. And so the focus of their residency training program is education. Um, it's, it's not, you know, research, all the other components are there, but education is like the big one. And so you know, when you have folks like that leading conference every week, when they're also, you know, out speaking all over the world for EM conferences, like, you know, it's, it's going to be high quality education. And not only that, but they built it into their shifts. Now, their acute area was slower than our acute area MGH. And so they actually had time to set up a whiteboard and kind of go patient by patient and kind of build out pearls and stuff. Um, I promise I'm getting somewhere with this. <laughs> um, but, and I know at, at, at Mass General, we, we generally don't have that kind of time in the, in the acute area. Um, so I say this all to say that I started in a brand new environment in which they didn't know what to expect from me and, and I didn't necessarily know what to, to expect from them. And that could turn out to be disastrous, um, but in this case it worked out for the best because we got to kind of learn how to work with each other together. Um, and so a lot of my mindset and how I, who I model my performance after are emergency physicians. So I know that's kind of unique because I'm a pharmacist, but because I didn't have as much of that training prior to getting in that role, then those were the folks that I had to look up to and to learn from. And so a lot of the way that I approach situations, I think, um, is actually similar uh, to an emergency physician, which I think is what's helped me to be successful in my career this far in, in 
in communication because I kind of understand where they're coming from without them having to explain it to me like I like I'm a like I'm in a different role. So um, for me, that's been really helpful. But I also feel like they had a big influence on who I become in terms of how I manage stress, at least outward manifestations of stress um, in those situations. Hmm. What do you mean by that last part? What do you mean by outward manifestations of stress? Well, I think I, I always think back to this one example um, early on in my career, uh, you know, typical crashing patient, multiple pressors. And as a pharmacist, there's a lot going on. And when you're the more meds, the more, <laughs> the, the more likely it is that a, that a pharmacist is going to be involved in, in that. And this one was no different. And um, I just remember that there was an issue with one of the, the vasopressors we were giving and I was short with a nurse, um, which is not usually like a, how I was, but just because of the stress of that environment, I outwardly expressed frustration and kind of said things in a way that I wouldn't have wanted to say um, to the point where I thought about it a lot. And I actually went back and apologized and we, we talked it out later because I felt like it came across that difficult. So I guess what I mean is that some of us are really good at um, we may feel very stressed inside, but outwardly we keep the same appearance to those working with us at all times. Um, and I'm a little bit more emotional and I am passionate. And so for me, sometimes that stress may come out in a way that is, um, you know, not helpful, quite honestly. And so um, I've gotten a lot better at that over the years. That's something that in terms of my self-evaluation that I really kind of have worked on. But, um, you know, how you how you respond to colleagues, particularly um, in those situations, you know, shouldn't be dependent on how you're feeling inside. It should be based on the relationships you've built over time. And I, I know it, that's an ideal world kind of view, but um, to me, that's the better, the better you get at working with them the same, whether it's a slow environment or a crazy environment, means that you're getting closer to mastering the skill of, of performance um, and stress management. And I'd argue the closer you are to mastering yourself as a human, probably. Yeah, I yep. Which is why none of us are uh, are perfect at it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Um, so I want to press on that a little bit because it, it, you said that's something that you've been reflecting on in your own process of self evaluation. What does that look like for you? What What does your self evaluation look like? Yeah, I. It's funny because I, I direct our um, our EM pharmacy residency at Mass General, and so I have a lot of interaction with the folks that accredit us, just like you do with the ACGME and all that, and um, or anybody that, that's in training programs for emergency medicine. And, and so there's a lot of rules and regulations that they have that you need to abide by to stay accredited and all that stuff. It's the same for pharmacy. Um, one of the things that they've really pushed on, and, you know, most of the time we find it to be very frustrating and it's a lot of extra paperwork and stuff that, you know, you don't really want to do. Um, but one thing I feel like they actually got right in our environment was really harping on developing a resident's ability to self-reflect. Hmm. And so at the end of each rotation, um, or I shouldn't even say rotation, but learning experience, because in the pharmacy world, even giving a um, continuing education presentation is considered a learning experience. And so there's going to be an evaluation and everything that goes along with that. Um, and they, they provide um, electronically, which is nice, the ability to have the resident self-reflect on the same questions that the preceptor is answering for that resident. So you can actually compare afterwards kind of like how you view yourself versus 
how others or your preceptors view your performance. Um, and to me, that was huge. And it, it really paid benefits in my first job, um, again, at, at Maryland. Um, I, think, I can't remember if it was my first or second year, um, but they did what's, um, my, my super, I guess the whole department did, but they did uh, blinded peer feedback. And so as part of your evaluation process, your boss sent out like, you wouldn't even know who they were, but they sent out, you know, evaluations to peers, and then they would be able to comment anonymously on, on you. Um, and, you know, there's no better way to kind of kill a buzz than hearing how other people view you when you think that you're doing outstanding at one thing and it turns out that you're not. <laughs> um, and so for me, that was a really big wake up call in terms of like, wow, I learned how to do self-reflection in residency. Now I'm in my real first job. And it's really important because, you know, I don't have someone looking out for me every month to say like, hey, how are you doing after this rotation? That's not, that's not real life anymore. Real life is me doing it on my own. And to me, that, that evaluation period was a big wake up call for how am I being perceived by others? And that, that was for me um, really helpful. It, it hurt. And, you know, it was one of those, it's like if anytime you get a bad evaluation, you just, you know, your heart sinks, you feel sick to your stomach. But you have two choices. You can either wallow in that and, and continue as you were, or you can use that feedback to help you get better. Um, and I chose the latter. And so I'm not saying I'm perfect at it now, even eight years later, but um, it was a big, big thing for me um, to, so what I do now is I, I try to do it in the moment because I, I know feedback is most important if given in the moment. And I feel like self-reflection is also the same. I know we don't always have time during the busy shift to do that, but um, I try to debrief with myself after like a really stressful encounter or situation just and jot some notes down. I use Google Docs or Google Keep, something that's really easy to just kind of have access to on my phone. Um, also now, because I oversee others, I, like I'm a manager now, so I, what I learn also needs to be shared with those other folks. And it's, it's not just me anymore. Um, it's, it's others that I'm responsible for. So I feel like that's a good way to, to do that. And what are you writing down? Like, like get super granular for me here. Like, so you have a case that comes in and it's a, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to make it not COVID because I think we're all tired of talking <laughs> about COVID temporarily. But so you got, you got a really, you know, a very sick person with a, with a GI bleed, they're vomiting up blood, their blood pressure super low, you know, and, and you're sort of doing everything you can for them. And, and when you're doing your post assessment, like, what are you writing down? Are, are you, are you using like a, a plus delta model where you're like, here's some stuff I did good. Here's some stuff I could do better. Are you doing a performance outcome matrix where you're trying to figure out like, is there a difference between what happened to the patient and the part that you had control over or what are you using for that? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit more rudimentary. I don't have like a specific model. And for me, it's mostly about interactions as opposed to the clinical decision-making. Again, I, I don't consider myself perfect at making clinical decisions. I certainly am not, but I feel you know, 12, 15 years in now, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on how I go about making decisions. Um, so for me, it's more about the interactions that I have, because I still, you know, I, I just think back to my last shift in at MGH in acute when, you know, I, there's one pharmacist, and we're fortunate now that we were able to build a 24-7 team, which didn't even exist when you were there. Right, right. Um, but um, there's still only one of us on at any given time. And so one pharmacist for the whole department um, 
is weirdly doable, but also overwhelming at the same time. <laughs> um, but when there's multiple sick patients, particularly if they're in different parts of the ED, um, you know, you're being pulled in, in various directions and the individual nurse who, or, or physician or whoever is asking you for something doesn't know the rest of your workload. And so it's very easy as one individual person like myself to become stressed about that and to, to respond to them in a way where it's like, hey, I'm doing a million things, like I will get to you when I get to you. Um, but that's not recognizing that they also are in the same situation, but they, they, are not, they don't necessarily realize all of what you do. And so um, for, that's the type of interaction that I, that's the type of feedback that I'm giving myself nowadays as opposed to clinical, not that I don't second guess my clinical decisions, I do. Um, but I think for me, the things that I, that I work on most are the, the way I interact during those um, moments of stress with others in terms of communication. Um, so those are the types of things that I saw. So what I'll write down is things like, um, was just simple things to jog my memory so that when I have more time later in the day to reflect on it, I can, I can remember exactly what was going on. But I'll write down like the name of the nurse or the name of the, the, the physician that I was working with with this, a quick description or some synopsis of the situation and what I, how I responded. And then later on, I'll reflect about how I can, how I would do that differently next time. Understanding that I'm going to be in the same exact logistical situation with limited resources to, to do that. But, you know, the way that you respond is always your choice. That's the one choice you actually do have is the way that you respond. And so I want to make sure that I, I do the best I can. So then what's the second half of that, right? So you write down, you take the time to dig into what you were doing, what it felt like, and you say, hey, I think I could do better here at this one particular point, continuing this example, this, this interaction with a particular person. Sure. You know, what's the second half of that? Do you come back the next day with an index card of like, here's three things I want to try today? And like, do you, do you know what to do? Or do you set up experiments where you're like, I'm not sure if this will be better or worse? How do you, how do you iterate upon that knowledge? Yeah, that's thanks. Thanks for that follow-up question, and that's it's um that's difficult. And what you're describing um is that's how I teach my residents, the people that I'm training. That's exactly what I teach them to do. So I I, I basically tell them, and they can use their phone if they want if they have a program that is quick to access. But basically, carry around an index card, um, and it's not for patient stuff. You know, you're going to have your own patient workflow chart or whatever. Um, your index card is for two purposes. One is to um all of the all of the stuff that comes your way during the shift that is not anticipated, you need to write those down as they happen. So for example, if I'm in day one dealing with a trauma and a nurse comes from another area with a totally unrelated patient question, there's no way that when I walk out of that room, I'm gonna to remember to go back and kind of like you, you know, you see how many EKGs in a shift. <laughs> um, but like, you know, if someone comes to me during the middle of one of those resuscitations, there's no way when I walk out of there, the first thing on my mind is gonna be following up with that person. It's just not. So you need to write those down. And so I, what I train my residents to do is that, and that way by the end of the shift, then you can make sure that all of those things that were on your list that were not part of your normal workflow um, get done. That's one. And then the second thing is, the, is like the, is the, what you talked about. So I do, I, have, I use a couple of different feedback methods, but um, I, I like the, the what went well, what, what, what didn't go well and what could be improved for next time. That's the, the, it's the W3 method. I, it's very quick um, and can be used kind of at any time. So I have on the opposite side of the index card, I will have them kind of write those things down. So during a situation 
you know, what went well, what didn't go well, and, and how can we improve for next time or what, what can we improve? And that's in my mind. I don't necessarily write things down in that way as much as I used to, just because I've done it too many times. But that's the general method I use in my mind. So I will reflect on what things went well. And I kind of add a caveat now and what things I did, did and didn't have control over. And, you know, as I practice more and more, you realize how little you do have control over. Because, <laughs> um, you know, those things, those things you can't, I don't necessarily fault myself for making a decision or, uh, or, or communicating in a way if it's related to something that I had absolutely no control over. You know, you, you kind of do the best you can in the moment. But the things I do have control over, those are the things that I will come back the next shift and really be cognizant um, of how I can apply what I told myself I would do the last time this time. Um, but it's about repetition. So I can do that one shift, but then it's so easy the next shift to come back and be exactly you were two shifts ago. And so um, I like to keep trying to practice whatever it is um, until you it becomes part of your, you know, the way that you, the way that who you are or the way that you respond um, and, and more of a habit. So what's the end of your month look like? So you've had, well, you have a stack of index cards. You've been every day coming in and saying, okay, here's my W3 answer to whatever it is. And yep. this is what I'm trying. And then how do you close that learning loop? Right? Like how myself. do you know that you're not, well, either for yourself and then also yeah. how do you teach that? Cause like what you said is just like, that's just gold. That's just solid gold right? It's so easy to try little things every day, but then to show back up and end up where you were two days ago, as opposed to two days forward. And, and that's just like such a real, like I feel that viscerally having gone through that over and over again, whether it's, you know, in the ER or, you know, on the jujitsu mat getting caught once again. And the same thing I figured I'd learned like two days ago, like that's a real challenge that we have to keep going through because we need these micro learning circuits and then we need these macro learning circuits of like overall progress and making sure we're actually measuring how we're getting better at stuff. So what's, what's that other piece of it look like? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. The one, the easier part and then the, the harder part. And the easier part is when it's not me. So if I'm giving that feedback to someone else, <laughs> like, my, like my resident, um, we have built in processes for following up on these things. So we'll have like, you know, daily check-ins and then we'll have weekly check-ins and then we have an, a midpoint and a final, like all these evaluation periods built in. Um, and then we have a transition process to the next rotation. So if they're going from ED to MICU, we'll have a sit down with the oncoming MICU preceptor and talk through these things. So that way, whatever they're still working on, they continue that in the next rotation. So for them, I think it's a little bit easier because at least for a year that we have them, um, you there's a built-in way to continue to monitor progress. And I'll say that that also applies to the folks that I oversee now. So I oversee the emergency medicine pharmacist team, the pediatric pharmacy team, and also the overnight pharmacist team. So that's almost 25 folks. Um, and you know, so the same with them. I don't get to meet with them as much as I would like my resident, but you know, we have midpoint and final evaluations and we have at least ways to do that. Now for me, that's the hard part. So I mentioned the easier one was other people and the harder one is me um, because I'm the only one that's going to hold myself accountable to this stuff. You know, my boss is, is the director of clinical pharmacy services and oversees all of the clinical pharmacy areas for the hospital. So I'm not necessarily getting evaluated on, on how I perform in 
a high stress situation in the ED. That's not what I'm getting evaluated on. I'm getting evaluated on how I manage my 25 employees and the three teams that I oversee. And so if I, I could easily just kind of focus on that stuff. But for me, I just, I love EM and I love the clinical stuff so much that I, I, I never want to, I never want to settle for where I am now. So what I do, um, and this is hard for both me and, and it may be hard for the listeners to hear too, but I think it's important. And that is you got to ask for feedback um, from those that you work with. Um, and I, this is like the 360 degree kind of feedback. So it's not just that I'm going to go ask my pharmacist team who may not want to give me an honest answer anyway, because they work for me. Um, but that's asking you as the senior resident that I worked with on that case or asking the nurse, um, what can I do better next time? How can I be more helpful in that environment? Um, and I'll be honest with you, like I don't do that all the time because it's hard, you know, it's hard to go and admit that you were not the top, at the top of your game and, and you're, but at the same time, it really helped me early on and still today build solid, like actual solid working relationships because if folks understand that that's not always who you are and then every once in a while you're going to get caught up in a stressful situation and respond in a way that you normally wouldn't but they know that you recognize that and you care enough to ask them about how they how they how you could be better next time working with them i th i found that people really value that um and they're also likely to give you a i think an honest answer which so that's the harder part for me but i think that that's that's the way that i do it um not as often as i should but that's how i like on a monthly or or semi annual basis will kind of reflect on on those kind of things like how did how did how do you think I'm doing um, from peer to peer hmm. across disciplines? You know, pharmacy, nursing, respiratory. All right, I, I wanna I wanna pull together a couple of threads that we talked about so far, and 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 sort of hypothesize for you what I'm gonna call the like Brian Hayes model of clinical pharmacy, and like see if we're <laughs> see if I'm in the right space about this and what we can jump off on it. So, okay. But what I'm hearing is that your performance in your specialty has two major buckets in it, two major components. One is your actual clinical skills, the exact knowledge in, an, in a vacuum. And two is the performance of those skills. And that, that performance breaks down really into two pieces. One is your internal ability to manage stress and pressure within yourself. And two is your communication and team skills, which is how do you deploy that knowledge within a team environment. So to work on that model and to improve that model, you do these micro circuits and these larger circuits. Your micro circuits are your day-to-day -day things where you look at you look at two things. You look at these external support structures to make sure that you're getting all of the clinical questions down. And then you look at this W3 method of what can you actually do better for the uh, performance half of it. And then in the macro level is you're sort of charting those things over time and making sure that you're really drifting, that your, that your trend line is going in the right direction. Did I, did I capture all of that? Yeah, that's a really, really well put. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for summarizing that. And my, and even for that's helpful for me to even like visualize it that way. So yeah. that's not how it, how it appears to me in my mind. But that, yeah, that that's great. Thank you. Great, man. You got to write that textbook. That's, that's amazing right there. But it's like such a, it's such a well thought out and well structured model. And I, you know, I think we've touched on pieces of this in other conversations on the podcast, uh, but it's interesting to see it put together as sort of one broad brushstroke like that. Um, 
especially as somebody who both practices and also teaches that at the same time. And as you know, you're faced with these questions at various points in your career, and they're a little bit different, right? Sometimes you're, you're faced with how to get better, but you're, you're learning within the context of a school of one form or another, whether that's residency training or, or pharmacy school or medical school or whatever school. And then at some point you make the transition um, along the path to, uh, I guess we'll call it mastery, along the path to mastery, where all of a sudden you're sort of on your own and you're in charge of figuring out how to continue to get better. And you either sort of level out, if not like Nader, um, or you continue to get better. And, and actually, now that I think about this, Anders Ericsson talked about this in his book, Peak, specifically related to doctors. And he talked about how like on average, if you, and I forget how he studied this, but if you look at like the actual effectiveness of physicians, they tend to sort of like hit a peak a couple of years out of coming out of residency and then flatten off. They don't necessarily get better. And in fact, over time, they get worse as their uh, understanding of the knowledge of the universe drifts away as the knowledge of the universe continues to grow. And I, I think that that's something like I'm, I'm really conscious of is how do we continue to get better at what we're doing? Um, and I like this idea of this, of this double-sided index card like that. Um, I'm gonna have to try that. It's nice because it fits in if you're in your scrubs or whatever you're wearing. It's it's not like it's a big burden because I you know back before smartphones were a big part of our life. You know we had all these books, we all these like pocket size books that really were bigger than pocket size <laughs> that we carry, and they still make them. You know Emra has all of them, which are they're really helpful. But once you graduate from relying on those for your day to day practice as much, you know you you can you have room <laughs> in your pockets for whether you wear a white coat or not for the uh, for the index card <laughs> that's great your your philosophical your like uh, abstract pocket has now space for like working on your own performance yeah. Which, i don't know i wonder i wonder like do you think that's true like can you do you have to master a certain amount of the clinical skills before you can effectively work on performance or are these two tracks that you can work on at the same time I, i've thought about that a lot um I think that you can work on them at the same time. However, there needs to be some level, and I don't know what the level is, but there needs to be some level of, of a clinical, I don't want to say mastery because that's certainly not it, but at least a clinical um, baseline, uh, I guess is the best way to put that. Because if you're trying to perform really well, but you don't actually know what you're doing, then you can manage the stress and the communication as much as you want. But at least for a pharmacist, like a lot of our, a lot of what we do and how we impact patient care, and I can only speak to the ED, but I think that it is a similar on the, on the floors, um, particularly the ICUs, is building a relationship of trust so that you, Dan Dworkis, as my senior resident that I'm working with, trust me so that you can, like when you have a question that comes up, you're either gonna come to me yourself or send your intern or someone over and say, hey, this is a, a complex medical question, medicine question, talk to Brian about this. And if I have proven to you time and time again in situations that I am giving you the wrong answer, then you're not gonna do that. And so I think that you need to have some level of clinical baseline. Um, that's not to say you can't be working on your performance skills at the same time, you certainly can be, but I don't think you can get really, really good at the performance stuff and still you have a pretty good baseline clinical skill set um, to balance it out. It, it, does that make, I guess that hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, I definitely think it does. Brian, this has been just totally awesome to talk to you about this. And I, I feel like I've 
I've learned a ton, both like for going forward in time in terms of what I want to do differently. And also looking backward in time as I sort of like relive a lot of our, our crazy cases and experiences together and, and now understanding, oh, that's what was happening in the background as Brian was processing everything. Um, so thank, thank you for that like enormous gift. But um, as we close this down, I, I want to give you an opportunity to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this, um, whether they are starting in their career, whatever that career is, or they're a more experienced, you know, slightly more gray haired version of things. Like, what do you want people to do differently this week when they're, when they're out there trying to perform under pressure? Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Um, again, it was, it was great to connect with you. It's been too long. I know it's only been two or three years since you graduated, but it feels like it's been so long since we've, we've actually connected. So this has been great. Um, I think I, I would just like to go back to the, what we were talking about earlier, and that is um, in order, at least in my opinion, in order to continue to get better at this skill set, um, you know, you can, you can read, you can, you can do all the things, you can listen to podcasts, you can, there's a lot of information out there that, that's outstanding. But I think to actually internalize it, self-reflection is a big key. And so I really do advocate for um, once a shift, and I'll, actually, I'm, let me make this even broader because this doesn't even just apply to emergency medicine or even medicine at, at all. And that is um, whatever it is that you do um, after each shift of, of that work, uh, think back to, to different, think back to the three or four scenarios during that shift that really, Got your blood boiling a little bit, either stressful from like a frustration standpoint, or just, um, or just a situation that required a lot of cognitive energy, uh, that really, and a lot of communication. That that either even if, if it went well, or even if it didn't go well, there's always still room to think about how it could be better the next time. So my challenge is to think about those things at the end of the day. Um, I normally like to zone out and listen to podcasts on my train ride home, um, partially so that I don't think about my day anymore and help to clear my mind. Um, but when I do get home or when I, after I've kind of cleared my mind a little bit from just sort of the this general stress of the day, think back to those three or four scenarios um, and really be, be hard on yourself. Not, not to the point where you want to be, you know, degrading on, on how your performance was or stuff, but just really think about think how you think you performed in that situation and how you were perceived by those who you worked with to be performing in that situation. And then, once you identify that gap, then you can start to come up with um, real life ways to improve because then you, once you can, if you can identify the gap, then you'll be able to build a stepwise process for working on those, th th on the things that created that gap in the first place. Um, so that, that, that would be my challenge going out. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks Dan for having me. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash signup. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.